Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Real Estate Podcast, the intersection between the latest trends in real estate and its impact on our everyday lives. We're your hosts, Alex Norman. And Jamie Blonde, and you've come to the right location. The real estate starts now. In today's episode, we explore the intersection between community building and real estate. How creating community and rich ecosystems can improve quality of life for residents, economic opportunity for businesses, and a successful investment for investors. Our guest, Marvin Wilmoth, managing principal and co-founder at Generation Development Group, a real estate development group that focuses on utilizing social determinants of health as drivers of the built environment. Marvin also serves as vice mayor for North Bay Village. Welcome, Marvin. Welcome to the show, Marvin. Thanks, Alex and Jamie. Glad to be here. So tell us a little about yourself. Oh, sure. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm managing principal and co-founder of Generation Development Group. Uh, it's a real estate development firm that really focuses on building for people and for place. Um, in addition to that, um, Vice Mayor of North Bay Village, it's a city with a population of just under 10,000 uh, people. That's uh, that's made up of three separate islands uh, that I've been vice mayor here for uh, since November of 2018. I really focus a lot uh, on sustainability and resiliency issues for for the city. So tell us a little bit about Generation Development Group. What is it exactly? What's the mission? What are you working on? Give us a picture of what's going on there. Absolutely. Um, Generation really leverages holistic uh, human-focused, mixed-use, mixed-income real estate development to create more resilient, sustainable communities. Um, we really try to do this through a unique approach that we call the Generation Ecosystem Model, which is really a five-pillar framework that focuses on education, you know, environment sustainability, economic mobility, health and wellness, and community engagement. Uh, and so what we do is we start by designing for a community solution first and then subsequently create a financial structure that allows that, uh, that community development to thrive. So when you say community, what, what do you mean by that? You know, it's, it's a, uh, I think we, we take a, a very interesting view of community, obviously community, uh, for our residents is something that we very specifically focus on, but different, uh, you know, I don't have to explain to you, e each community is different. Each uh, area is different. What you're going to see in Buffalo or the needs of a city like Buffalo are different than the needs in the city of a city like North Bay village. However, there are some very common things that are, uh, that are sort of consistent across both of those uh, geographies, which is why we focus on those five pillars. Um, so when we say community, we really like to take a look at uh, the surrounding area. What are the local businesses that are that are in the area? What are some of the needs that a specific community has that uh, that we can help solve? Um, for example, you know, is it in an area that's a food desert or is food insecure? Do does the uh, city have higher incidences of uh, child obesity? Uh, is there access to, to ex education and things of that nature that we really focus on? And by uh, and while we're designing the, the actual physical infrastructure of a development, we try to incorporate 
uh, very specifically solutions to some of the issues that are unique to, to a different geography. So Marvin, you, you have a unique background. You're both a developer and a public servant in a way, which is unique for people in the real estate business, I would imagine. And so you're coming at development with this sort of social uh, interest in mind as you as you build environments, which which most people don't don't have naturally, because one would think I would think that is it the responsibility of the developer to think about all these issues, or is it the responsibility of the government to think about these issues? And you kind of you kind of doing both. Is that the future? Uh, is it the future? Uh, I think it should be, but um, <laughs> I don't I don't know that that'll be the case. Uh, you know. I do. I have had the the opportunity, and uh, quite honestly, the the honor of being able to sit on both sides of the table when it comes to developing community. I've been able to see some of the you know, policy changes that can be made to counteract climate change, to uh, provide uh, uh, fresh water, uh, to protect our our intercoastal and bay areas. In addition to having to build uh, in a way that's also economic, uh, environmentally and economically sustainable. And in doing so, uh, I think that I have a very unique perspective into what community development should look like. Understanding that no one of the public and or private sector can really solve, can holistically solve community issues. It's gonna require a combination of the two. Uh, you know, when you think about, when I think about development, there's an old uh, uh, Iroquois, I believe, philosophy that says the decisions that we make today should result in a sustainable world seven generations into the future. And that's really the way that we like to think about uh, development. You know, the buildings that we're working on, uh, the community we're redeveloping in Buffalo was built in 1906. Uh, and it was an old industrial uh, grain silo and processing facility. And now we're repurposing that for modernized loft style uh, residential apartments uh, and apartment homes in addition to ground floor or business incubation, uh, business incubation space, art galleries, uh, hydroponic farm, et cetera. And so, you know, the, when, we develop, when we develop communities, we really try to take a look at, okay, Yes, we are, uh, we're doing construction now, but we know that this development, this building is gonna be here for the next 50 or 70 years. We should be considering not only solving for issues uh, that we know will are currently um, something that needs to be handled, but also thinking about that for the next 10, 20 or 30 years, right? You know, if we know that the seas are rising, we should be think taking that into account. If we know that, um, uh, if we know that uh, there's an area that has a lack of access to fresh fruits and vegetables, then we should be considering that as we're building for uh, for the for the next couple of generations of, of folks that will live uh, in any of our communities. When I think of a silo loft, somehow I think of getting breakfast ready, putting the bowl on the counter and pull some chain and four pounds of granola is going to fall into the, <laughs> into the bowl. But um, you, you've spoken in the past a lot about uh, the health of the citizens of the community. Um, I think you mentioned once that 10% of health issues can be related to location. Uh, almost half of relations are, can be related to 
uh, personal exercising, whether you smoke, whether you're eating. And, and one of the, your focuses has been on how working with the developer, we can create a community that can help solve those issues, educate for those issues uh, with the people who are going to live in that community. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. You know, uh, well, I think a lot of folks um, talk about wanting to do community development. And a lot of times it's very difficult to quantify what that actually means. How are you actually improving quality of life? How are you actually benefiting uh, different individuals? And through our research into trying to solve some of these, some systemic issues, we found that there is already a quantifiable model uh, that's being used. I think uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has done a great job of breaking down the social determinants of health into quantifiable uh, issues. But, you know, I think as developers, what our focus should be is trying to help nudge people into the right direction to make good uh, good health decisions and good behavioral decisions. Um, that in and of itself led us to the, the field of behavioral economics, which links psychology to decision-making um, uh, by thinking about solutions uh, during design, we can create better community. So if we know that we have a place where uh, physical activity is not something that's, that's on the top of uh, uh, of the list, or, you know, we have issues of, uh, as I mentioned before, like child obesity and other types of obesity. What are the things that we can do from a design perspective to get people to take the stairs, to get people to walk around the community? Um, and those things are very apparent. You know, if you put, uh, if you make uh, taking the stairs a more engaging activity, which, you know, one of the things that we've done is putting, you know, having the artists that are local in our community to, uh, provide murals into into uh, those stairwells to encourage people to take the stairs. You know that has a, a dual benefit of one, you know, employing and encouraging local artists to organically leave their mark on uh, on the development one, and providing them economic opportunities, and then two, uh, encouraging our residents and guests, quite frankly, to take the stairs to see beautiful art and. Now we're not, you know, telling someone, hey, you know, after you're done with work, when you're tired, you should go and go to the gym afterwards. We're saying, hey, why don't you go on this art walk really quick before you walk into your apartment after a long day at work? Or, you know, by providing wider walking paths and, you know, with, with art outside, we can now have people walk around the community and maybe they can take a lap uh, when otherwise they would typically just go inside and go, go upstairs. So those are the kinds of things that we try to focus on. Okay. Well, you know, it's funny because I feel like behavior shift is tricky, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's either it's either forced or it's welcomed sure. in a lot of cases. I remember, you know, Bloomberg wanted um, the healthier schools, so he got rid of vending machines and soda pop. Sure, so people got pissed. Yeah, because that's what you, you'd expect there to be soda vending machines in a school, and you know, everyone, some some kids. Now you're saying that you can't have something that 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 you want. You, so that's part one, but I think on your side, you you you're building these communities that people have elected to move into, mm -hmm. right? So they so they're saying to themselves, I mean, you're not forcing me to eat healthier. I actually want to eat healthier, so I'm gonna I want to live in your grain silo city, if you will, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, in your community that you've built because you do have all the things that actually I already want. So in a way, you're not necessarily 
changing people's behaviors. You're just allowing people to do what they already want to do at home, right? I mean, is that what Yeah, I think it's even, I even think saying? it's a little more subtle than that. Um, because I think as part of the, you know, while we will talk about our programmatic experience as part of the marketing package, it really, which we will, which talk, we about. will talk about, uh, <laughs> we will talk about it, but I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's more subtle and, you know, we, I think you and I have talked at some point in time around how do you get people to cook fresh foods? You know, I, my, my family uh, is from Honduras. And so I grew up uh, eating rice and beans and, uh, and uh, chicken and things of that nature. And that's culturally what we ate. Uh, Brussels sprouts was never on the menu or were never on the menu. Um, however, if you can find, well, they don't taste very good, so that's okay. Don't worry. I, you know, it's funny you should say that because I disagree. Now, I'm a huge fan of Brussels sprouts where I wasn't before, and a large part of that comes by someone showing me how to cook them in such a way that they're they're tasty. Um, if you roast, yeah, Brussels sprouts taste a lot better with bacon and. Uh, <laughs> Not the healthiest one. They're yeah, they're, they are so delicious. But if you, you know, if you think about something like that, you know, one of the biggest hurdles is in addition to places that are food deserts uh, is one, finding the fresh food and vegetables. If you're not nearby uh, whole foods or other things. And of course the affordability of that, that goes along with it. But once you have Brussels sprouts and spinach and green beans and all these things, what are you going to do with it? If historically that's not been part of your, uh, you know, you're, you're cooking uh, for a, and so you've got to provide an engaging activity to, uh, to get people to be interested in, in learning how to cook things that they otherwise wouldn't be, which is why, you know, we're thinking about partnerships with local chefs that already have a following, uh, already have really interesting restaurants that people want to come and see. At the same time, you know, we'll provide a fresh basket of fruits as part of the cooking experience. And then now you have a situation where you have a local chef that has a good following, teaches how to cook something that you otherwise wouldn't have eaten. And then you now have a bag of, of that you know, said vegetable to go upstairs to try with on your own. And so it's, it's really thinking about how is this going to be used at the end, uh, uh, you know, all the way through to someone cooking it and putting it on a plate and feeding themselves. Uh, and so, you know, we, we are really focused on trying to create those experiences to make people engage as opposed to, you know, trying to force uh, behavioral change. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the upcoming episodes uh, we have is with uh, somebody who's one of the leaders of vertical farming, basically bringing the fresh produce closer to the city um, uh, with the use through the use of technology. So it sounds like things are coming together to make your uh, your mission perhaps even easier. I hope no one's going to listen to this and in communities and go, hey, guess what? Our elevators break more than anybody else's. <laughs> so if you're looking for exercise, we are the development for you. That's not the message. Absolutely right? not. Right, Marvin? No, no, no. All of our developments are ADA friendly. We are absolutely open to to having any anyone uh, come to our development. So you don't have to take the stairs, although we would love for you to do so. <laughs> though, though, actually, I would love to see the treadmills in gyms in the buildings power something. It's funny. It's funny you should say that because I'm looking at uh, gym equipment that either a powers itself, so it doesn't require a power source, 
or B, does allow for the recharging of a cell phone or uh, other things as uh, as the exercise is happening. So yeah, again, we're thinking about this all the way through to the end. So understanding that environmental sustainability is something that's paramount to us. Um, you know, we're trying to find as many ways as possible to lower our, uh, you know, our carbon footprint, footprint and our demand on electricity. So I love the sustainable approach to the environment, but I also even, I love even more the sustainable approach to your wallet, right? So you're, you're, the affordability of community, uh, accessibility of community um, uh, economically is actually quite, quite profound. And it sounds like you're doing that as well, at least you're thinking about it. Absolutely. You know, we, we consider our, we like to leverage our power as a larger developer up front to be able to lower our, um, our residents' costs on the back end. So by getting low flow fixtures, by using LED lighting, uh, you know, by, by using alternative energy, you know, by leveraging our, our volume pricing and volume buying to uh, reduce the cost of uh, internet service or, or cable or TV service, we're then uh, reducing the expenses for our residents and providing them with opportunity, additional savings opportunities. Uh, so yeah, we, we really, um, you know, uh, there are two ways in which you can build wealth. You increase your income or you reduce your expenses. We try to provide opportunities for our residents to do both, both by, uh, you know, some of the things that I just mentioned from a, a expense reduction perspective, and then also providing opportunities for our residents, whether it's through uh, flexible space or pop-up stores where residents that have a side business can uh, can sell wares on-site or, uh, or outside by attracting small businesses that are doing local, that are doing business locally by providing this business incubator where we can provide collisions of community and capital we're really trying to uh, help folks build wealth in a number of different ways, both from the income perspective and from the expense reduction perspective. So uh, Marvin, efficient use of capital has always been the end all to be all for real estate development. It's all about the cap rate. It's all about um, you know what you can borrow the money at, what you think you can sell the units for, and therein is the decision whether to develop. You're coming at it from a more holistic point of view, from something that's more valuable than just financial, but also health-wise, community-wise, um, education-wise. As you work with developers, what are the stumbling blocks to, to, to having everybody move towards this type of model? You know, I worked for a number of developers prior to to us founding our own, my business partner and I founding our own company. And a big part of the, um, uh, I'll call it antiquated thinking, but a big part of the, uh, the inertia, lack of inertia is that things have been done this way for so long uh, that you know, people have been successful without having to do anything differently. Um, a lot of times uh, the, uh, the developer community and those who are running development companies is very homogeneous. And so uh, a lot of times those companies come from people who have uh, access to wealth. They have generational wealth that's been handed down. A father has handed a company to a son. Uh, and so there tends to be a disconnect from, uh, from the living experience of some of the uh, you know, middle and, and lower middle income uh, residents 
versus those who are making the decisions on the development from a, from a high level perspective. One of the things I used to, uh, or one of the things I, I often say when it comes to, you know, why, why the focus on people and not the bottom line, uh, I don't think you can separate the two. Uh, if you think about what drives valuation in real estate, it's desirability. Uh, and the places where you want to live are places where you have access to good healthcare, or places where you have access to good schools, you can get food and vegetables. Uh, and so by focusing on people, in our opinion, we are driving the valuation that is going to ultimately uh, make a, a property, you know, more, more financially desirable. Um, but, you know, if you think about the impact that you want to make, uh, you, know, you can make, you can make an individual impact by, maximizing income or by maximizing valuation, but you can make generational impact by providing the folks that live in your, in your developments, uh, opportunities for improvement, uh, access to college prep or things like that, that will then change generations down the line. If you can, um, if you can provide those, that access that, you know, uh, other folks may have because of, uh, the location they live in or because they have financial means to get to it, if you can provide that to a larger uh, population, you then have the opportunity to really drive valuation and really change uh, community and provide economic development uh, at multiples of what it would be if you were just focusing on the bottom line. Yeah, yeah I'm a huge proponent of that. And I'm a believer that um, longer term value is a, is a huge missed opportunity in some cases um, in the, in the world of real estate where I feel like it's heavily focused on transactions. And for me, you know, when I look at other industries like financial services, um, um, the services industry, um, fast uh, uh, moving consumer goods. The, the idea around brand loyalty is a thing. You, know, you, you can get all the sales and deals and the buy one, get one free offers to, to get in, get your product or service. Uh, but then what keeps you going back? You know, what keeps you, what keeps you buying more Pepsi and Coke? It's the, that loyalty. And to your point, when people, you know, the desire to move into a great property is fantastic, but you know, what, what is it that keeps them there and keeps them happy while they're there? And I think to your point, it's you know, community and all these great things that you're thinking about and allowing people to engage. So I'm a huge supporter of that. You know, when I think though, uh, and, and this idea of community uh, has been thrown around as a word for years, more recently in real estate and other industries. Uh, but I think when people think about or hear the word community, they think social. They think uh, taking pictures of kids, birthday parties, barbecues, and all that kinds of stuff. And really don't think as much about um, the, the environment, education, all those things that you talked about. So um, are there are there things in addition to all the great stuff that you're doing, um, are there things in your community that you're doing to promote the social aspect of community in addition to the health and wellness and all other good stuff? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think you mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation about organic, uh, organic growth and organic um, design. And really, you know, the first thing that we do as part of any development is really spend time engaging with the residents uh, of a specific community and engaging with, uh, you know, th those surrounding businesses. But what we've done that I think is a, a lot different than others is, you know, understanding that systemic problems require ecosystem solutions, the, you know, we use our ecosystem model to provide an operational framework so that we can implement a strategy to create something that's replicable 
uh, and adaptable to different ecosystems. And so what that means is we've taken a look at the technology and how do we use technology to really improve people's lives and drive those kind of social connections. Part of that is uh, connecting, um, connecting all of our technology solutions, both to an individual, from an individual unit perspective, from a communication perspective, both with uh, you know, our, uh, our managers uh, managing the, the community on site and you know, creating that culture, as well as providing opportunities for our residents and surrounding community to interact as well. So you know, we talk about, you'll hear me say ecosystem multiple times on this, uh, during this conversation. And we really use ecosystem because it's a place where people can get together and have these conversations. And it's really that organic, uh, that organic sort of conversation where one resident, uh, you know, one of our residents needs X service and another one of our residents actually provides said service. And now you've created a connection between those two to, you know, they, they now have a bond, they, they, they're able to provide services to each other. And that's something that we don't have to do, but it, it allows a community to be built and makes, uh, like you said, uh, creates that brand recognition for, for our individual developments. And we really have taken more time in uh, creating a holistic and uh, thoughtful technology solution, both from a communication perspective that interacts with everything else that's happening on site, whether it's security, whether it's point of sale, whether it's uh, event coordination and access. Marvin, um, when I think about you talking about community, it reminds me um, um, that you're the vice mayor of North Bay Village. And as opposed to Disney, you actually do live on a real Treasure Island because there's three <laughs> islands, one of which is called Treasure Island. Right? Absolutely. So, so you're a coastal community. Um, you must have issues relates to whether the water levels or a lot of the garbage uh, that, that, that comes ashore uh, on our oceans and our beaches. What are you doing as vice mayor and, and how does that play into this whole um, effort that you clearly are making in turn to improve our communities everywhere? That's a great question. Uh, and yes, uh, the, sea the sea level is rising. We are ground zero for that. Uh, you know, North Bay Village is a man-made island, um, but you know, a, lot of, uh, a lot of what's happening now is as the community continues to build and develop, we're seeing that some of our seawalls are at the appropriate height uh, necessary and some are not. And so one of the things that, uh, that I've done the moment that, we, that I was elected was formed a sustainability and resilience task force to start to think through how is it that we're incorporating uh, environmentally friendly practices as well as preparation for the next 25 and 50 years into everything that we do as a village. Uh, so you know, we're currently undergoing a strategic planning process that is, uh, you know, quite literally re-envisioning our entire seawall design and infrastructure. We're thinking through, you know, as waters rise, how, what are we doing uh, from a, a new development perspective to make sure that, you know, once a development is built, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be out of date, you know, 10 or 15 years from now. So we're, we're raising ground floors. Uh, we, you know, we're raising the ground floor, uh, uh, entry to to a lot of the developments on our new development. We're providing uh, we're providing opportunities for uh, residents of new developments to or new properties to uh, have 
bonuses for providing environmentally friendly practices, whether it's a living wall, whether they're providing solar uh, energy, things of that nature. And then we're really taking a very, very strong stance in the protection of, uh, of Biscayne Bay and our waterways. So we were the first city in Miami-Dade County to pass a Florida Friendly Fertilizer Ordinance. Uh, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you could say that three times fast. The triple F, yeah. the triple F, I'm very familiar with it, of course. I, I immediately regretted it uh, the moment we named it and uh, <laughs> and I had to say it multiple times in commission <laughs> meetings. But you know that, that legislation um, was uh, allows for a number of different things. Uh, so fertilizers that are currently used are nitrogen rich. What we're seeing is the nitrogen during the rainy season is running off of people's lawns and going directly into Biscayne Bay, which is creating issues of uh, nitrogen rich water, which creates low oxygen environment for fish, which is what caused, you know, we're having issues. We've had now two issues in the last uh, 12 months of fish kills. And so we were proactively uh, trying to address that by creating a summer blackout period where you know no one could put uh, fertilizer on their lawns. Uh, there, sorry, you read that. What about what? I, I was going to ask you a question though about the about the fertilizer, but has there been any studies uh, about the hand sanitizer? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, are we getting? Are we are we looking at a pandemic uh, with with our fish population down the road because of what we're doing with our uh, with our um, our hand sanitization? I think it's less. Uh, I think it's less about the hand sanitization and more about uh, what's <laughs> happening to masks when you're done with them. We're starting to see an abundance of masks that go. are that are polluting the environment, where single-use plastics used to be uh, the thing that we were focused on. Uh, and I'll I'll get back to what we've done around single-use plastics in a minute. Not uh, to go back to your question, Jamie. Uh, but no, we haven't seen anything around hand sanitizer at, at, as of yet. <laughs> uh, but going back to the plastic, uh, you know, I. Uh, I guess in the summer of last year, uh, have expanded uh, in partnership with the city of Miami Beach, uh, their director of environment and sustainability, uh, Elizabeth Wheaton. Um, they started the Plastic Free MB, so Miami Beach initiative. We have now expanded that into North Bay Village where we discourage the use of single use plastics. We are encouraging all of our businesses to use sustainable products. So no, you know, no plastic bags, only reusable paper bags, or we're encouraging our residents and we've handed out hundreds of uh, you know, reusable bags with North Bay Village on them. We've provided business uh, con consultation services to help businesses identify low cost alternatives to single use plastics, whether it's plastic containers or plastic bags and things of that nature. And so we're, we're trying to address both the supply and the demand issue at the same time in order to really reduce our, our uh, reliance on uh, those plastics and, and help reduce uh, the amount of waste that's created. Because a lot of times what we're seeing is, you know, we'll do cleanups here in North Bay Village, uh, you know, usually on a monthly basis. And a lot of the plastic that we're seeing show, uh, show up on our shores, you know, some of it is being generated by our residents and we are actively working to educate uh, both on recycling and other, and other uh, types of ways to to reduce that plastic debris, but a lot of it is also coming from our surrounding neighborhoods and, our, and surrounding neighbors. And so, we're we're working right now to take this plastic free initiative to Surfside, to Miami Shores, to El Portal, to Biscayne Park, uh, areas that aren't necessarily 
in the middle of Biscayne Bay, but they're, uh, you know, them reducing their reliance on plastic will also help reduce the plastic that shows up on our shores and help protect our waterways. Well, it's interesting you bring up nitrogen because uh, one of our shows discusses uh, kale farming underneath the ocean. And one of the advantages is you don't need any fertilizer. You don't need any nitrogen. You don't have any of those pollutants. All that is already in the water and uh, the kale feed off that and grow off that naturally. Uh, and then you get all the benefits of, of seaweed, something like seaweed in terms of eating it. So um, again, another area where technology hopefully is going to lead the way uh, to solving some of these issues. I wonder if you could per perhaps in North Bay Village, you could tell their, the, uh, your constituents they could fill the plastic bottle with water, strap it to their legs, and walk the stairs and get a better workout. <laughs> everybody, everybody wins. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Yeah, plastic is a four-letter word around here right now, so... I think uh, you, you'll have a hard time finding folks that are willing to, to actually get plastic bottles to use them. But, you know, yeah. Uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, it was amazing to see how many people um, retreated to our public spaces as a place of solace. Um, you know, everyone was cooped up in their homes, but now our public spaces are sacred. Uh, you know, our parks are incredibly clean because people understand that know when when they want to get outside and they and they've seen now the benefit of having that space that's readily available to walk your dog or your or, or take your your kids out to play uh and i think that has really driven a uh, a narrative change not just in north bay village but i think in the greater miami Dade uh, county community well i think to your point uh as we you know, talked earlier about community and and in how you approach development. It looks like we'll probably be seeing more public spaces built into residential development development projects moving forward. Right, and I, I wonder. You know, there's there's a time when um, it was the trend to to install um, yoga suit. Well, actually, it was a trend to install. Uh, amenities like pool halls uh, and movie theaters and buildings. Uh, then it kind of shifted to to a bit more gym and health oriented than than yoga and all that good stuff. So it seems like people want more activity, more space, right? More activity uh, and more opportunities to connect with each other in their place of of residence. Uh, and and it sounds like companies like yourself are leading the charge in being able to provide that. And I just, I just love to hear that. And, and it takes a village, right? Uh, and it's an ecosystem. And just because you do it, right? Literally, just because you do it, also someone else has to do it. And next next town has to do it. And it seems like the entire city can be built in a way um, around this idea. So what are, what are you doing to drive or to lead that in addition to what you're doing in North Bay Village, in addition to what you're doing on your project in Buffalo? Uh, what are you doing to engage the community of developers to build more stuff like what you're building? Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, by creating this generation ecosystem model, we are providing the framework uh, that folks can use across multiple developments. I think, you know, going back to the, the question about why, you know, why we aren't seeing other people do this, uh, it requires a lot of brain damage to figure this out. I mean, a lot of developers are either familiar with construction or they're familiar with finance or they're familiar with property management, very few are healthcare experts or education experts. 
or experts on economic development outside of sort of the, the, the real estate portion of it. And so we, you know, our goal has always been and continues to be to change the entire housing industry to be more human centered and human focused. And by providing this tool, by providing the framework, by providing the technology that allows this to happen in multiple geographies uh, where, you know, it's a plug and play model where all you have to do is find the local partners to execute on the, uh, on the social pieces or on the environmental pieces, you can then now have conversations with developers and say, Hey, you know, I, I know that you're, you're building this community and you're, you know, you're providing affordable or workforce housing or quite frankly, market rate housing. And that is great. But if you were to make just a few slight changes, you could also provide your residents with an opportunity to, uh, you know, for additional after-school education and enrichment opportunities by doing this. Uh, I think you know once the tool is built and people can see the the benefit of it and can quantify the impact, I think it'll start to catch on. Marvin, when I think of um, of government initiative. Uh, towards housing or subsidized housing. I think of these big subsidized housing plots that governments run that they just seem to run them into the ground. I don't really, they don't, they seem to put them up and they don't, the up the upkeep isn't there. Uh, certainly the focus on health, focus on security, which is what the residents want. Seems like it's not there. Um, are you, what are you doing if you can do anything in terms of working with the governments to, to provide better solutions that, that address health issues, that address security issues for that part of the population? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there, I mean, that's a, that could be its own podcast in and of itself. You know, the, the department. And we're out of time. Thank you very much. <laughs> so it all started back now. Um, you know, I think, I think when you think about public housing, the, the financial model of it in and of itself is, uh, is tragically flawed, in, in my opinion, uh, for a number of reasons. One, it's always systemically underfunded uh, because of a number of issues, uh, not the least of which is some of the some of the uh, inherent bias around affordable workforce housing. Uh, but you know, stepping outside of that, I think there are a number of things that uh, that the government is doing in a very positive way to help support the development of this kind of uh, sort of human focused uh, housing. It's just a matter of uh, getting developers to the table that have a more holistic view. Um, so for example, um, the, you know, one of the most successful examples of uh, supporting uh, affordable workforce housing is the affordable housing tax credit, uh, which essentially provides a dollar for dollar reduction in your taxable income for the purchase, uh, you know, for the purchase of these tax credits, which are then used to, to fund development, um, you know, between that uh, and you know, for for housing tax credits, historic tax credits, all these things have something in common in that they have a public and a private purpose. Uh, and by doing that, you promote efficiencies because the market in and of itself always tries to find a way to be to be an efficient user of capital. Uh, I think fully public solutions like public housing uh, are flawed in that because it's a fully government mandated program, it's not designed to be financially self-sufficient, which requires it to always need input. And so, you know, I think 
again, you know, it's, it's a situation of having to be able to show um, quantifiable metrics, which, you know, before now haven't really existed uh, in a, in a way that I think developers uh, and the, the private sector can get behind by showing the quantifiable metrics and then linking that to uh, sort of currently existing government supported uh, uh, financial opportunities. I think you can really start to make, make some real difference uh, in, in the industry itself and, and in, in uh, communities in general. Well, Marvin, this has been incredible. Uh, not only has it been ex extremely educational for me and eye-opening, uh, but your thoughtful approach to community building, your thoughtful approach to development, and your thoughtful approach to thinking about the environment and the well-being of humanity is to be commended. So I want to thank you for that and thank you for your work, but also thank you for your time on the podcast. Um, it's been super fun. No, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Been oh, sorry, go, Jamie. And definitely been been eye-opening, educational as well. And and we appreciate you working as vice mayor. I know I don't know if that's a paying position or not, but I'm sure if it is, you're not uh, you're not retiring on it. And uh, that means you're putting in a lot of your time and effort to help the community. And I know that uh, people around my community here that take that time and effort and do it, it can be a thankless job. It's uh, they should be uh, they should be recognized as you should. Well I make a grand total of $6,800 a year being vice mayor of North Bay Village, but the, uh, the benefits are, are you know, uh, I, on a day-to-day -day basis, have the ability to help change and direct the, uh, the, the vision and uh, future of the city. And so that in of itself is, is, a, is a humbling responsibility uh, and something that I take incredibly seriously and I'm very proud to do so. Well, thank you for your service. <laughs> All right, Marvin, thank you for being on the show. Uh, looking forward to hearing more of your success. Absolutely. Alex, Jamie, this is an incredibly needed service. Thank you for your podcast. I look forward to, to listening to some more. You've been listening to The Real Estate Podcast. Give us a quick review and rating on iTunes. Check out our website at therealestate.co and let us know if there are any new topics you'd like to hear us address. We love hearing your feedback. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.